of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Before we begin tonight, I want to acknowledge that this show is being recorded on non-ceded ancestral lands of the Nipmuc and Pocumtuck Nations. I also want to acknowledge the small amount of accountability that was achieved this week in the fight against institutional racism and the dehumanization of African Americans, especially African American men and boys. While this conviction does not bring back George Floyd, it gives his family and his community and really the whole community that cares about this sort of thing, a bit of closure and a bit of relief. However, as we have seen in recent weeks, this in no means means that everything will now be okay. We will need to continue to pressure police forces, governments, the carceral system, the legal system, All of these things still need huge amounts of reform. We cannot put down our signs, go home, and think that everything will sort itself out now. I'm personally hoping to do some volunteer work with Decarcerate Decarcerate Western Mass. Um, I've linked to the organization on the website, Um, And by the way, I've been trying to update the website uh, more with videos and with links. Um, That is my sort of extremely belated uh, New Year's resolution is to actually make that website a place to go to um, and have there be something other than just links to the uh, audio of past shows. And so... um, if you're interested, evidence-based errata, E-R-R-A-T-A dot com. And so uh, speaking of updating the website more frequently, let us shift now to a much happier subject. NASA did it. It takes a little ingenuity perseverance, and spirit to make that opportunity a reality, uh, wrote NASA in a tweet on Monday, April 19th. And so, obviously, we are, re- we are talking about the Ingenuity helicopter and its first flight. NASA received the first data at around 6.15 a.m. Eastern Time, And it had traveled first from Ingenuity to Perseverance, then to the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, and from there it departed Mars, was picked up by a large satellite dish in Madrid, Spain, and then finally to JPL in California. And that data, she first flight, was a roaring success. The helicopter's rotors spun up to 2,500 revolutions per minute, and then the helicopter rose to just over 3 meters, or 10 feet, 
hovered for around 40 seconds, and then descended safely. Moments after the data came in at JPL, the helicopter project manager, Mimi Ong, said, We can now say human beings have flown a rotorcrafter, a rotorcraft on another planet. We've been talking so long about our Wright Brothers moment on Mars, and here it is. The area where the helicopter is being tested has actually been named the Wright Brothers Field. And as I've mentioned before, there's a small piece of canvas from the Wright Brothers plane actually on the helicopter itself, um, right on the top underneath the, um, the rotors. Now, this is, of course, just the first test. The team had four more planned flights, and Ingenuity is going to need to go higher and farther, farther to really show that this can be a tool we can add to future missions. If all goes successfully, this will be a huge new tool for space exploration on planets and moons with at least a thin atmosphere. Now we should remember just for a second the extreme conditions that both Ingenuity and Percy are enduring. For Ingenuity, the fact that the atmosphere is only 1% of Earth's means that it's a real challenge to get any kind of lift at all. And while the gravity is only one-third that of Earth, this doesn't actually counterbalance the issues with lift. So even though the uh, rotocopter is, uh, has less mass on Mars and theoretically is easier than to lift off the ground, the problems with the actual uh, formulas for lift just because it's lighter on Mars, if there's nothing to grab from those rotors and push off against, that isn't going to help anything. It could be light as a feather and still stick hard to the ground um, unless you can actually get something to push off of. And in Martian spring, temperatures never go above freezing. It can actually dip as low as 100 degrees negative 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, I've posted a few videos on the website in case you've somehow been off the internet or have had no power uh, for the last week. Um, but I just couldn't resist talking about this amazing feat um, because it is so exciting. Um, and so I do apologize. Please indulge me if you know all of this already. While the flight was initially delayed by an issue with the watchdog timer, which caused the helicopter to fail to transition into flight mode during the original test, the NASA team was able to create a solution which quickly got the mission back on track. The team adjusted the command sequence and transmitted it to the red planet in order to fix the issue. This solution is the least disruptive to a helicopter that, up until we identified the watchdog issue, had been behaving just as we expected, Ang wrote in a blog post Saturday. It is the most straightforward, since we do not have to change its configuration. Ingenuity then was able to lift off and engage its own programming to navigate using the navigation camera on the bottom of the helicopter. Remember, Ingenuity actually 
actually has more processing power in its small little body um, than Perseverance. And I noted that the helicopter had four more flights because they were actually able to successfully execute another planned flight. This time, Ingenuity flexed its muscles a bit. Not only did it lift off and hover successfully, it rose to around 16 feet, made a lateral move of around 7 feet, and then turned around and came back to the starting point, which is huge. That is another really huge uh, proof of concept of its abilities. And so look forward to even more exciting news from above the surface of Mars and in the Martian atmosphere. Now, Ingenuity is not the only NASA asset on Mars making big waves. Remember, per Perseverance is got a lot of stuff that it's working on as well. And so on April 20th, the MOXIE, or Mars Oxygen In-Situ Resource Utilization Experiment, became the first Earth-built device to generate oxygen on another world. We do have to make that caveat because, you know, who knows? Uh, maybe we are uh, mere children when it comes to this sort of thing, and there are people um, or beings out there doing all sorts of crazy things. Um, my husband and I were watching um, Star Trek the other day, and um, it was actually Star Trek Enterprise. We're watching it for uh, the giggles. Um, <laughs> and uh, I was saying that um, I really just want it to be the time when the Romulan, I mean, when the excuse me, when the Vulcans get here. And he was like, what? And I was like, you know, we're getting towards the point where we might have, you know, the technology, technological advances that, you know, the, the aliens should come and, and teach us how to be spacefaring people. And he just laughed. Um, and so obviously I don't think that's going to happen, but, um, always keep an open mind just not so open that your brain falls out. Anyways, getting back to real science on actual planets that we've been to. <laughs> the MOXIE device produced roughly five grams of oxygen. While this is obviously a very small amount, it is another amazing proof of concept. This could be important for producing oxygen locally for both the use of astronauts for, you know, breathing but also, importantly, for the fuel to return to Earth. Someday we hope to send people to Mars, but they will have to take an awful lot of stuff with them, Michael Hecht, the principal investigator of the MOXIE project, explained in an email to Gizmodo. The single biggest thing will be a huge tank of oxygen, about 25 tons of it. This oxygen would be used for both, again, the astronauts to breathe, but also, again, that important fuel source to get them back to Earth. But if MOXIE works out and continues to show it could produce oxygen on planet, it would 
Save a lot of money, time, and complexity, said Hecht. But it's a challenging new technology that we can only really test properly if we actually do it on Mars. And so that's what MOXIE is for, even though it's a very small-scale model. And so MOXIE actually creates oxygen by splitting carbon dioxide, which makes up 96% of the Martian atmosphere, into oxygen and carbon monoxide. MOXIE uses electrical energy to take carbon dioxide molecules, CO2, and separate them and separate them into two other types of molecule, carbon monoxide, CO, and oxygen, O2, Hecht explained. It uses a technology called electrolysis that is very similar to a fuel cell, except that a fuel cell goes the other way. It starts with fuel and oxygen and combines them to get electrical energy out. Now, you might notice that CO2 does not uh, break up naturally into CO and O2. It would break up into CO and O, um, but the O2 occurs because oxygen atoms really don't like to be alone. Uh, they will either bond with another oxygen atom or with something like hydrogen or carbon. Uh, you'll rarely see atoms of uh, oxygen in nature. Um, I'm not even sure that you would be able to see them in nature at all. Um, and so oxygen is definitely one of those uh, atoms that combines readily with other uh, elements. And so that is, of course, part of the problems that we have with oxygen uh, is that it's extremely reactive. And so uh, we have to talk a lot about oxidation issues with ox with oxygen because it is a highly reactive molecule. And so something that would not be highly reactive would be like one of the Nobel gases. So like uh, xenon or neon, those are very um, inert and they don't do a lot of reacting with other molecules. But oxygen wants to basically pair with anything it can find. <laughs> um, it is not picky, uh, at least in the uh, major molecules that are out there. And so MOXIE actually uses heat to break the molecular bonds, reaching temperatures of 1,470 degrees Fahrenheit. And so the device contains 3D printed nickel alloy components to heat and cool the gases as they flow through the device, along with an aerogel to trap the heat inside. It also features a gold-plated shell to protect perseverance from the heat. Because, of course, remember, it's on, it's one component on the larger Perseverance rover. And so if it didn't have that shielding, it could do damage to other components of the uh, rover that are nearby. It takes around two hours to warm up. Not to mention, of course, because it's so cold on Mars, but it can ultimately generate around 10 grams of oxygen per hour. 
Now, that kind of translates basically to 10 minutes of oxygen for a human being. But again, this is a proof of concept. So the plan now is for NASA to build a much larger version on Earth, and they think that it will now work just as well on Mars. Hecht notes that it was actually surprising how well the test went. At home, if I were to just put something in a closet for two years and take it out again, I would be surprised if it was working perfectly, he said. For Moxie, we've subjected it to all kinds of torture, running it through heating cycles, blasting it off from the earth, leaving it in the vacuum of space, plunging through an atmosphere, exploding all sorts of deployment devices around it, and finally running it in harsh conditions on another planet. And it was completely unfazed by all this. This was really again, just a test to see if everything was working properly. Um, as with most of these first tests. And so now the real work will begin. And so the NASA team will test the device's functionality. Then they'll do experiments in various atmospheric conditions by testing the device at different times of the Martian day and night, for instance. And then they will explore different modes of operation, such as varying the temperature as the system runs. So for the next two years, a Martian year is almost two full Earth years, Moxie will show its stuff and hopefully will continue to run exactly as designed. Which is very cool. Um, I'm not going to deny that. I actually um, was watching YouTube the other day and I was watching... Um, it was one of the, I have about, uh, I have several hundred uh, subscriptions on YouTube. My husband is always making fun of me and saying, you really need to call that. Um, so it was one of the science uh, channels that I am subscribed to. And they were actually showing a, um, a video, an artist rendering video of what might happen um as we think about moving people to Mars or having them at least live in Mar on Mars for some period of time. And I was actually really impressed um, by one of the suggestions because, of course, I often talk about how it's extremely hard uh, to imagine anyone being able to go to Mars and live there based on a myriad of issues. But one of the issues that, you know, is a big one is how do you shield astronauts from radiation? And so one of the proposals, which obviously is not something we can do right this instant, but is to send up forward robots that would then actually be able to go to a site and actually build up uh, buildings using 3D printing and uh, the actual Martian regolith. And so they showed it basically building these structures that would be domed um, and it would basically create kind of an ant mound uh, structure that would be, um, you know, have thick Martian regolith walls. And then what you would do is underneath that you could uh, have uh, modules that connected together and then were... Uh, basically blown up like balloons. 
And so you would have those living and working spaces underneath this pre-made uh, ant mound of sorts. Um, and so that would help with radiation. And uh, one of the other things that they're working on for radiation, because it would take, I think they said at least three months uh, to get there. Don't quote me on that. I'd have to look it up again. Um and so one of the things they're looking at is an alloy that looks like it's pretty good at uh, shielding from ionizing radiation. Um, and the alternative is actually a pretty, uh, you know, sometimes the easiest thing is the best thing. So one of the best uh, shieldings against uh, ionizing radiation is actually plain old water. And so another uh, design might be to simply have water inside of the uh, core walls of the spacecraft. Um, another uh, one that I thought was a little bit more um, ten, ten, tenuous, uh, I think that's the word I'm groping for, is uh, that they basically, one of their current ideas is that the um, they would basically have the supplies stacked in such a way that in times of really intense bombardment, the astronauts could basically uh, climb into the center of all of the um, all of the supplies and basically hide inside of those supplies. And so then most of the ionizing radiation would be absorbed by the supplies around them and that would protect them. Um, I'd like a little more proactive solution, personally. Um, I think that while that's technically probably something that would work, um, if I was going to be an astronaut, I'd certainly want something a little less uh, <laughs> speculative than just hide inside of the supplies and it'll be all good. We promise. But uh, again, though, this doesn't there are still some really big obstacles to uh, living on Mars. And one of them is the, um, is the gravitation. And so Mars only has one third the gravity of earth. And while that's cool for a few minutes when you're doing spacewalk um, or when you're walking on the surface and you can take big leaps and, uh, you know, cover a lot of distance really quickly. Again, humans are built for earth gravity and when they are away from earth gravity things start to happen to the human musculoskeletal system that are not conducive to uh basically too long life <laughs> um so we still have a ways to go um we still have some things to iron out but I'm really excited by all of the uh, rover and explorer and now helicopter um, missions that we have working on Mars to learn more about Mars. Because I think that Mars is amazing and fascinating and we should definitely learn more about it. And if we can someday live there, we can work out all these problems. That would be a, that would be totally amazing again. Um, this is really a place where the the uh, use of the word amazing is not hyperbolic. Um, 
And so, and of course, another big thing I was talking to my husband about, he's been work, he's been watching, um, for all mankind, uh, which I have not been. Uh, and I was, you know, we talk about how the show has speculated that all of these products that we have in today's day would have been developed in the eighties because in that timeline, the space race never stopped. And I think that there's some truth to that, that, uh, when we design things for space, when we are working on tough problems that are meant to solve problems about being in space, humans are pretty darn good at finding really interesting technological solutions that then sort of cascade down into technological solutions for other sectors. And so that is a reason why I would be all for uh, working on going to Mars. All right, but let's, let's, let's reel ourselves back in and move on. Uh, and so we're going to be leaving space and moving on to other things. And so last week I ended by talking about some of the oldest signs of culture and cultural production. And so, uh, one of these ancient products of humanity is glass first produced in Egypt and Eastern Mesopotamia around 3,500 BCE. But we're not going to be talking about its origins. We're rather going to be talking about the absolute newest technology that treats glass more as plastic and allows it to be injected, mo injection molded into complex shapes. And so today, as in ancient times, glass is created by melting silicon dioxide or silica to around 3,600 degrees Fahrenheit. And then, obviously, we use a variety of techniques to mold it. Modern glassmakers can easily produce flat sheets like window panes and rounded bottles, but they cannot mass-produce the intricate designs required for modern biomedical instruments. In 2017, researchers led by Frederick Kotz, a microsystems engineer at the Albert Ludwig University of Freiburg in Germany, took up this challenge. They reworked a 3D printer to forge glass rather than printing with plastics or metals. They created a printable powder of a printable powder by mixing silica nanoparticles with a polymer that could be cured using ultraviolet light. Once they had printed the required shape, they applied the UV light to cure the polymer and fix the shape. They then fired the piece in an oven to burn off the polymer and to fuse the silica particles into a continuous glass structure. Now, this was a great proof of concept, but it was slow and could only create objects one at a time. Despite this, they immediately began to see interest from companies wanting to build minute lenses and other complex transparent optical components for telecom equipment. And so in order to speed up the process, Kotz and his colleagues turned to injection molding, again like that used to mass-produce plastic items cheaply and easily. This time, the researchers used a combination of silica particles mixed with polyethylene glycol, or PEG, and polyvinyl butyrol, or PVB. This gave them a dry mixture with a consistency 
kind of like toothpaste. The paste was then fed into an extruder that pressed it, pressed it into molds with shapes such as a disc or tiny gear. Initially, the items held their shape outside of the mold due to van der Waals interactions between the silica particles, but they were still very fragile. Van der Waals interactions at the microscopic scale are very strong, but basically, if you blew on them, uh, that could uh, cause them to, if you blow on them the wrong way, I should say, it could cause them to, to uh, fragment. In order to harden them, the objects are first washed with water to remove the PEG, and then they are fired in two stages. First, at over 1100 degrees Fahrenheit to burn out the PVB, and then at just under 2400 degrees to fuse the silica particles and create the actual glass object. The end result is a highly pure silica glass in any shape that you could want or at least that you can construct a mold for. The glass also has the optical and chemical characteristics needed for those commercial telecommunications devices and for chemical reactors. One large hurdle does remain, however. The washing process is still slow, requiring days to be completed in order to ensure the glass does not crack. If the research if the researchers can, well, crack that problem, then injection-molded glass may become a co as commonplace as plastics and could lead to a host of new innovations. So let us hope that they can tackle that final obstacle and create a process for mass-producing glass in the same way we produce plastic. Glass has many important properties and is much less high impact on the environment, for instance, being easily recyclable. And so I think there are lots of things that we probably should still be using glass for, but obviously plastic is now ubiquitous and uh, there are weight considerations, but uh, definitely for these specialty devices, this could be a really big breakthrough. Okay, uh, we are going to take a break. We are going to pause for some PSAs and some show promos. And then we, when we come back, we are going to revisit uh, another uh, subject from last week. We're going to talk about another version of a new way to sample DNA. And so please do stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in the CD or tape player, each week presenting shows which can at times be organized and orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. 
Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's Subculture Music Program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. We are back, and you are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. So, as I noted before the break, last week we also talked about environmental DNA and the proof of concept for sampling DNA from the air. This week, we're going to talk about extracting ancient DNA from, well, dirt. Researchers took samples from a cave floor in northern Mexico and have been able to recover high-quality ancient DNA, not just fragments, but also close approximations of whole genomes. This particular sample has helped clarify the history of Ice Age bears in North America. Anna Linderholm, an archaeologist at Texas A&M University College Station, who is not involved with the work, notes that this is a, quote, huge breakthrough. We are just scratching the surface of what is possible when retrieving ancient DNA from sediments, she explained. The new study, led by molecular paleoecologist Mikkel Winther-Pedersen from the University of Copenhagen's Globe Institute, took samples from Chicahuite Cave in northern Mexico. The team began exploring the area in 2012, and they've discovered stone tools dating to around 30,000 years ago. And so the team wanted to explore if they could find out what other animals might have inhabited the cave. Because, of course, humans are animals. 
They sampled sediments from different layers of the cave floor, with 48 of the samples yielding DNA. The researchers looked not just for mitochondrial DNA, as previous studies had done, but sequenced all the DNA found in the samples. Strides in technology have allowed this to be done in days rather than weeks, and computer software is available to help sort through and parse the sequences. As the DNA was being analyzed, it was compared with publicly available bare DNA sequences. For the mitochondrial DNA, the researchers were able to find that black bears, Ursus americanus, had lived in the region for at least 3,000 years. For the nuclear DNA, the researchers took the sequences they were able to recover and matched these fragmented segments against known DNA sequences. Using this technique, they were able to roughly assemble three black bear genomes and one from a giant short-faced bear, or Arctidus simus, an extinct species best represented by fossils from Canada. Pedersen calls the sequences environmental genomes, as opposed to the complete genomes taken from currently living organisms. Using these sequences and comparing them against other known sequences from across North America, the researchers were able to flesh out the history of bears during the last ice age and beyond. They found that as the ice age waned, black bears headed as far north as Alaska. Others mated with black bears from farther west, and their descendants populate or populated the U.S. Southwest. Not sure if the Southwest still has a lot of bears. Um, I honestly am not sure. And this is all according to a paper published in the journal Current Biology. And so a direct timeline can't be determined from these traces, but all of this would have happened around 12,000 years ago, which is when the ice sheets retreated north and opened up these sorts of corridors where the bears could actually move up into Alaska and into other areas. Some of the eastern black bears interbred with other Alaskan black bears and migrated to other parts of Alaska. Now, knowing the history and genetic relationships of animals like this in the past can aid in conservation efforts in the present. And so, you know, a lot of conservation uh, is often involving things like trying to preserve genetic diversity. And so being able to have knowledge, deep knowledge about the genetic lineages of these animals can be really important for conservation efforts. But the paper is also another proof of concept in the emerging world of sampling DNA from unlikely sources. Let's hope that these areas expand and our knowledge of the world around us will equally expand. Maybe this will lead to Bigfoot. I've apparently decided that Bigfoot is the unofficial mascot of evidence-based radio. <laughs> okay, so let's move on now and talk about what it means to alter the landscape in a meaningful way. 
and how the Western idea of taming the land is often used to disregard other ways of land management and land use. I was actually talking about the Central and South American version of this with my boyfriend the other night. Until very recently, many researchers refused to seed the hands of native gardeners and planters in areas of the tropical rainforests that feature rich areas of biodiversity and land capable of sustaining plant crops. And so that has been known for some time, and it's still been really hard for a lot of um, of biologists and ecologists to really wrap their minds around. And so this current study actually features the knowledge of First Nations people in British Columbia, who knew that their ancestral villages, lands that were forced they were forcibly evicted from in the late 1800s, were thick with foraging plants such as hazelnut, crab apples, cranberries, and hawthorn. Uh, you don't need, there are two kinds of cranberries, so not all cranberries need bogs. Um, there are actually cranberries that you can grow on bushes that don't need water. Uh, for all you Massachusetts people, uh, like myself. And so now science is learning the reason why. I say that science is learning the reason why, because of course, other people already knew. The area was deliberately cultivated by First Nations people, with isolated patches of fruit trees and berry bushes having been planted in and among the region's hemlock and cedar forests more than 150 years ago. This is the first example outside of the tropics of such a, quote, forest garden. It's very creative and sort of unique work, says University of Kansas Lawrence plant ecologist Kelly Kincher, who was not involved in the research, many of us know there are historical imprints on the land, but tend to dismiss Native Americans and Aboriginal people globally in terms of their impact. In order to prove that these areas were deliberately cultivated, Simon Fraser University historical ecologist Chelsea Geralda Armstrong first identified village sites near Vancouver, Canada, and two closer to Alaska that had been forcibly abandoned in the late 1800s. By counting and identifying the species growing in and around these former villages, she was able to determine that they had a much higher percentage of biodiversity than the surrounding conifer forests. The species were also planted carefully in order to fill a wider range of ecological niches. It's striking to see how different forest gardens were from the surrounding forest, even after more than a century. Says Jesse Miller, a Stanford University biologist and co-author of the study, they compared the, these areas to nearby patches that had been logged out decades ago and left to regrow vaguely naturally. <laughs> uh, and so these patches featured just a few species of conifer and did not have the same variety of edible species. The forest gardens bucked the trend, Armstrong said. The fact that they have persisted for so long is a testament to the careful tending of those long-ago ancestors. And especially 
the idea that they filled a lot of those niches, which makes it harder for new plants to invade and take over, according to the researchers writing in the journal Ecology and Society. Not only do these gardens still have the potential to nourish humans, they also act as important food sources for birds, bears, and insect pollinators, again despite having been abandoned 150 years ago. A lot of functional diversity studies have a humans-are-bad-for-the-environment approach, Armstrong says. This shows humans have the ability to not just allow biodiversity to flourish, but to be a part of it. The findings may help to shift people's understanding of indigenous knowledge and to solve the question of how nations in the Pacific Northwest were able to sustain complex societies without quote-unquote Western agriculture. That stumped a lot of anthropologists, Armstrong says. Now we know it wasn't just salmon. Um, and so, of course, you can see that mindset that they just couldn't understand how people could have any kind of complex society without Western-style agriculture. And so apparently they envisioned that they were just gorging on salmon all year long, even though that can't possibly be true given the way that salmon migrates. And again, it may also help in our work today to shift the way in which indigenous voices are heard in the realm of conservation efforts. Anthropologists and archaeologists have been arguing in favor of this, but there has been a lot of resistance from, eco from ecologists over the past 20 years, said Patrick Roberts, an archaeologist at the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History, who again was not involved in the research. And I think we are long overdue to take a step back and learn from people who have inhabited this land for many more generations than any other people. I think that a holistic approach to land management is something we could very much stand to learn more about. Now, this isn't to say that indigenous knowledge should trump modern science. I am very much pro-modern science. I am very dubious of things like claims that we can feed everyone organically, given the way that we currently uh, are able to farm organically. Uh, I am absolutely willing to have my mind changed, but I think that a lot of people don't have that ability. They're not willing to listen and... Um, I think we really need to do that, especially with people who have worked this land or who an whose ancestors were able to work this land. I mean, many of them aren't able to do anything on the land anymore because they've been forced out. And so I think that modern science can only benefit from having more perspectives. Um, this is a huge problem in science with it being very, uh, you know, white Eurocentric, um, that a lot of people who might have um, other kinds of knowledge are shut out. And um, I think that, you know, we have to really strive not to do that. I'm sure I have been uh, guilty of that myself. 
uh, in the past, but I think that it is important to listen to people and, um, you know, to look for these signs of really interesting ways that people have, um, solved problems in a way that is antithetical to the way that Western, uh, civilization, quote unquote, uh, cause such a thing doesn't really exist, let's be honest, uh, has solved the problem. And, uh, so this is actually related to, uh, another story involving the indigenous peoples of North America. And I wanted to talk about this because I think it's important to, uh, show when science is sort of failing to see its biases. Um, and when things like a, uh, desire to keep science quote unquote pure from things like religion and spirituality where that can actually cloud people's judgment. Um, and so again, I like to focus on the positive, but you can't always, uh, you can't sometimes ignore these sorts of stories. And so I definitely wanted to talk about this, especially since it has a hopeful ending. Um, so let's get into it. And so there was a recent controversy controversy at the Society for American Archaeology's, or the SAA's, virtual annual meeting. And it shows how far we still need to go with decolonizing the academy. Though it actually shows that, again, there's a lot of will to do this. So again, a little bit of sadness, hopeful ending. The organizers of the event chose to platform a talk entitled Has Creationism Crept Back into Archaeology? Co-written by Elizabeth Weiss, a physical anthropologist at San Jose State University and an SAA member, and retired attorney James Springer. During the talk, Weiss stated that stated that she thinks that archaeology have let creationism into the heart of our discipline, or archaeologists, I should say, because NAGPRA gives, quote, control of research over to contemporary American Indian communities, unquote. And, of course, those communities may request repatriation or refuse to participate in certain research based on their religious or spiritual beliefs. The two published a book on the same subject last year, to the dismay of many archaeologists, again. And so NAGPRA, or the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, was passed in 1990 and required, and still requires, that universities, museums, and other institutions inform Native American tribes of any indigenous human remains and artifacts in their collections, and to return them when requested. When the act was first passed, many archaeologists had reservations that this would compromise their ability to research Native populations. But archaeologists have learned how to honor the law and realized that Indigenous people should have the right to their cultural patrimony, much of which was looted from tribal lands. And many tribes have used this newfound understanding to forge connections with archaeologists to study their own history and ancestors. Not only was 
the paper, not founded on good scholarship, but there's also an inherent assumption that repatriation is anti-science. That's a red herring, says Kisha Supernant, an archaeologist at the University of Alberta, Edmonton, and a member of Canada's historic Indigenous Métis, who studies Métis sites. Reparations is about power. It's about who gets to make decisions about what happens to the ancestors. Members of the program committee are volunteers. So, you know, um, they're not professional reviewers, but they did review the title and abstract of Weiss's and Springer's talk and did not flag it. Deborah Nichols, president of SAA and an archaeologist at Dartmouth College, notes that there is a review process but it is not the equivalent of a peer review for a juried journal. Few abstracts are rejected, and they are basically only flagged uh, because of their analysis of looted artifacts, reports on work done without proper documentation, or those that promote, promote pseudo-archaeology, like ancient aliens. The talk was slotted into a session called Curation, Repar Reparations, and Accessibility, Vital Ethic Considerations, Ethical Considerations. During this same session, April Bysaw, an archaeologist at Vassar College, presented her talk on the importance of NAGPRA compliance. I am one of the very many people on the program committee, and I was not asked to review that abstract, even though NAGPRA is an expertise of mine, she says. I would have flagged it. She called Springer's argument nonsensical. NAGPRA is a human rights law, it's Indian law, and it's a property rights law. It is not a religious law. SAA's lukewarm reaction to the very real objections to this talk come in the wake of a sexual harassment scandal at the organization's 2019 conference. Supernaut was unimpressed by their calls for rigorous interrogation of diverse views. There are Indigenous members of the SAA, myself included, and there's so little care given to how a paper like this might have harmed us, she says. It was a very difficult experience to sit through that paper, when your very humanity and human rights are being questioned. She added, people are entitled to hold these views, but whether or not they're given a platform is up to SAA. For her part, Weiss defended her stance, saying that calls to cancel our talk, shut us down, or rewrite the guidelines for abstract acceptance are so that similar talks are not accepted next year are a distressing movement to silence voices with a minority or unpopular perspective. She went on to state her position that is all too familiar to many and smacks of the harmful platitude that one, quote, doesn't see race. Our position is not racist or anti-Indigenous. To us, there are no Indigenous archaeologists and no non-Indigenous archaeologists. There are only archaeologists. We think that the validity of any argument does not depend on a person's race. I wonder if you can actually pick up the sound of my eyes rolling with the new mic that I've uh, got. <laughs> And so Nichols did try to explain herself a bit more forcefully in an interview with Science Insider, stating that the SAA board supporting NAGPRA and says that they support NAGPRA and saying that they understood why some members were upset. 
She also, however, continued to defend their actions, saying that, At the same time, I also wrestle with the fact that silencing different points of view doesn't make them go away. To me, this controversy gets at what are some of the very, very hardest issues that universities, colleges, scholarly societies, and our society at large in the United States have had to wrestle with in recent years. She further stated that she felt like this would lead to change, but for Supernant, this comes too little too late. She is leaving SAA and is hoping to create a new professional organization, tentatively named the Society for Engaged Archaeology. In a recent tweet, she received a flood of interest and support. And I definitely hope that Supernant is able to build out this new organization and will be eager to see it flourish. As for NAGPRA, I once struggled with it myself, as someone steeped in white Western tradition, and as someone who is keenly interested in archaeology and all forms of history and science, the thought of allowing items to be reburied rather than being displayed for all to see and appreciate seemed a tragedy. But as I grew older and understood more about the importance of cultural sensitivity and the provenance of many of these items, I began to understand. Even if my intentions were good, respecting the will of those to whom these items truly belong is more important than any selfish desire for me to be able to see them on display or to preserve them against the will of their maker's ancestors. I can't be for the reparations of the elegant marbles, which I definitely am, and not also for the return of artifacts that have been looted, stolen, and forcibly ripped from the hands of those who have been colonized by the same people who built and funded institutions like the British Museum and the Smithsonian. I'm ultimately not sure what the right quote-unquote answer is when it comes to museum collections. I love going to museums and seeing all of the amazing achievements of ancestors from all around the world. But we also have to honor and respect those people who are alive today, now, and who may lack a connection to these items, which are housed in museums, often continents away from their place of origin, to the detriment of their current cultural understanding of the achievements of their ancestors. In a world steeped in a false hierarchy of civilized to savage, allowing people to know the full scope of their history can help them to break out of the rigid confines assigned to them by white Western society. And I'm so glad that there are archaeologists working today who share similar beliefs and are proactive in wanting to help our world be more equitable and respectful. All right, that is all the time we have for tonight. Uh, we're going to have to talk about Brazil nuts next week. Uh, I was hoping to uh, finish off with something fun and light, but we've run out of time. Uh, so next week we'll talk about uh, solving the Brazil night, the Brazil nut conundrum. Uh, you've been listening to Evidence Based Radio. Thank you and good night. Evidence Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.